0: Um, actually, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That's what we're going to be diving into. And Pastor Landon did not finish uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I was going to write off of um, the last verse into chapter 6. And when Paul was writing these letters, He did not intend for them to have chapters and verses. They just flow within one another. So this is one whole letter to uh, the church in Corinth. So it just rides off of chapter 5, as you would say. So the gospel has three categories, subcategories in my mind to kind of help me grasp what it is. And you'll get a definition of what the gospel is and also what we're ultimately saved from. So the gospel has, the first category is mercy. And mercy in the Oxford Dictionary says it's compassionate treatment, especially under one's power. And we're under God's mercy. And grace is the undeserved gift. We'll talk more about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And then there's salvation. Salvation is the deliverance from destruction and evil. So open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read the whole chapter to kind of give a context about what we're going to talk about, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Working together with him, we also appeal to you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. See now is acceptable time. time. Now is the day of salvation. We are not giving anyone an occasion of offense so that the ministry will not be blamed. Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hang- hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, in, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left hand, through glory and dishonor through slander and good report, regardless regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognized, as dying yet see we live, as being disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have known, we have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been opened wide we are not with withdrawing our affection from you but you are withholding yours from us i speak as my children i speak as to my children as a proper response open your hearts to us don't become partners with those who do not believe for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship does light have with darkness what agreement does christ have with Bial, or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me," says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for dying on the cross so that your Holy Spirit will ascend on us and so that we can be filled with your spirit, so that we can be partakers in you and fellowship with you, Father and to become more and more like you through sanctification. Thank you for your free gift, the grace that you give us every day that sustains us, for your son who died on the cross. And I just pray for me as well as I deliver your word to your children that you will equip me, Father, and that they will be filled with your word today. We thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be going verse by verse. So verse 1 says, working together with him. So we'll stop right there. So working together with is, in the Greek language, it's one word. It's working together with. But because we have English as a language, we have to break it apart to make sense for us. And working together is similar to fellowship. And what would Paul say working together with him? And him is Christ. If we go back just a page in my Bible, but a lot of you will just be a a verse before, so that will be chapter 5, verse 20. Paul writes the letter and says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. So Paul is writing coming off of the thought of being an ambassador of Christ. And the best way I can summarize this is, he's telling us to be ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who represents a country. You know what year the country was founded, you know the policies that the country holds, You know the country's people, the traditions, and what they do. And an ambassador for a country, because I know when I was in Uganda, I was friends with an ambassador's son. And they always dressed real well. They were always prepared to defend or give information about the country. And that way, you behaved in a civilized manner at every point, because you are being an ambassador of that country. So what Paul is telling the Corinthians right now is to be an ambassador of a kingdom that is not seen by our very eyes, but Christ gives us a perfect way of how to be an ambassador is by how he lived his life. And if we are being a representation of Christ's kingdom, what does that require us to be if we're to, re- to represent Christ's kingdom? We talk about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. That's a good one. The greatest commandment that Jesus said is first to love God and then to love others more than yourself. That is to be a good ambassador. What about the Ten Commandments? That is also to be a good ambassador of Christ. And to be a good ambassador of Christ, you have to work together with Him because Christ is the president or the king of this kingdom we're being an ambassador of. And he's giving us laws and to facilitate what we are to do for him. That's why we have to work together with him. We do not work together with God, but rather, God works together with us. Moving on, Paul says, we also appeal to you. What is Paul appealing? Appealing is to beg someone. What would Paul beg the Corinthians to appeal to him? Because eternity is on the line here. Um, There is something to do with where our eternal life is going to lie. And it's easy to be passive as Christians to, to live a double standard life and not think about eternity And many times the Corinthians, at this point, the letters being written, they did not take working together with God seriously. They were not being true ambassadors of Christ. And Paul is appealing to the Corinthians because eternity is on the line. And to be true ambassadors of Christ, you have to be more Christ-like to sell the kingdom of God. Because at any moment, you'll have to defend the kingdom as an ambassador. That's one of the reasons Paul is appealing here. But if we keep going on to just verse 1 here, it says, we appeal to you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. And that's one of the reasons why Paul is appealing to the Corinthians is because they are receiving God's grace in vain. But to receive God's grace in vain, we have to describe what, what is grace. Before I describe what grace is, is what is to receive God's grace in vain? When you become a Christian, grace is an undeserved gift that you get. And to receive God's grace in vain is you receive God's goodness and favor, but you hinder his work in your life. That is, that is not taking God's grace in vain. It's because God's grace empowers us to do his work. When God calls you to be an ambassador, like Paul said in uh, chapter 5, verse 20, sometimes we feel inadequate to do that job. But God's grace, that is a gift, empowers us to work together with Him. So the Corinthians were, in a way, not taking God's grace or taking God's grace in vain. And Grace is a free gift when you become a Christian. When you accept Christ into your heart, you get the free gift, which is grace. I put grace this way. I said I was gonna use the insurance policy, and here it comes. Grace is like this insurance policy. When you get into a car accident, your house floods or anything happens, it's covered for. It doesn't go up or down after the accident happens it's covered for. No matter what you do, it's covered. But because of grace, does that mean you have to be lazy and not drive? No. Because Paul says, do we continue to sin because grace abounds? But if you have this insurance that covers everything, where well, you don't have to pay, when you, get into, when you get into a car accident, does that mean you revoke yourself from the, from the insurance policy? No, because the gift is free. It covers everything. But because of this policy that you have, does that mean that if you see someone driving around and you just go ram them in the car accident, does that mean that's acceptable? Not as well, because you're abusing the grace at that point. But let's say the CEO of this policy is Jesus himself. He gives you this grace. What he's trying to let you do is when you drive on the road, he wants you to have this assurance that you're covered so you can drive with confidence. And so that you can also go sell this policy to others if they have a bad insurance company. You can tell them, hey, let me tell you about the insurance policy I have. But that's just using an analogy for God's grace. Hopefully that helped and it brought you understanding of God's grace. So that's why Paul is pleading to the Corinthians, is because they don't understand the gravitas. I like that word. Gravitas means the weight of the goodness of God, because God is trying to tell us that Christ dying on the cross paid it all. There's nothing we have to do. All we have to do is work together with him. That's all we have to do. But also, there's work to do, too, because he's giving us work to do. So it's just something where we have to find the balance. Verse 2, he says, at an acceptable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. If Paul was living right now and wrote this letter, he will be given a copyright strike here because he's quoting Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. But he's using this because it goes to the title of the sermon right now, which says, Salvation Today. So now that we get an understanding of what God's grace is, the undeserved gift that we get, Paul is saying, when you come or miss the mark, or go against God's glory, or you grieve the Holy Spirit by sinning. Sinning is missing the mark. The worst thing a Christian can do, or the Corinthians in this moment, is be caught up in not asking God for salvation Then, with your sin. Because sometimes as Christians, we tend to When we sin, we don't come to God right away and confess our sin. We wait. But the Bible right here in Paul is saying, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to turn away. And as I put before, salvation is deliverance from destruction or evil. And what are we ultimately saved from? We're saved from sin, yes. We're saved from our flesh, yes. We're saved from the enemy, the devil. And those are all right. But we're ultimately being saved from God's wrath. Because what Paul is saying here is God is such a patient God. And I'm so glad that God is patient with us because he can just kill us all right now because we are just not worthy. But that day of salvation will come to an end, because that's why God is patient with us. And that day of the end is the second coming of Christ. That's where God's wrath is going to come. And that's when Jesus is going to come as the lion, but not the lamb. He first came as the lamb and his first coming. But his second coming is coming as the lion, as a judge. And that will be God's wrath. So, and he's pleading to the Corinthians right now to, it's a sense of urgency when you sin or when you fall short, is to come right away back to the path of righteousness. And that's what it means. Moving on to verse three. Paul says, We are not giving anyone an occasion of false offense so that the ministry will not be blamed." Is Paul here saying that he's not trying to offend anyone? No. Right now, we live in a culture where anything you say offends. But Paul, in a way, is also saying that all he's preaching here is the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. The gospel says, that you are a sinner, and you deserve death. But also, Christ died on the cross for you, and that's not who you are. And if you work together with Christ, he looks at you as a righteous person. But also, the gospel points out our sin and our true nature of who we are. And now, that's what people find offensive. It's because they love their sin. But the gospel tells us to turn away from our sin because the day of salvation is now and it won't last long. But because God is patient with us, he gives us this assurance to come back to him. That's what the gospel says. It's good news. It's saving us. But Paul is not being offensive because the gospel is spoken with love and with truth. But the Corinthians are still offended by it and even now so many people out there are offended by the gospel and it hurts sometimes that so many Christians are also offended by the gospel because sin has you wrapped in its shackles and Paul goes on to say we are not giving any anyone an occasion of offense so that the ministry will not be blamed If you go and preach the gospel to people, and you do it with truth and love, and even though they're offended, the ministry, you and as an ambassador, you're only doing what the king sent you to do. There is no, you won't be blamed, because you did it with truth, and you did it with love. There's no blaming that goes on you, because you did your part, and that's what Paul is saying. But it goes on in verse 4 to say, instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything. So in a way, Paul is going to also defend himself because so many times when you preach the gospel in truth and in love, your ministry is still going to be blamed. But Paul here, as we go into these few verses, is going to commend himself, which is to give proof of him being an ambassador of Christ and proof that he works together with him. And he starts off by actually listing his credentials of what he has gone through as a Christian. So let's go to verse um, 4 here. It says, we commend ourselves in everything. And he starts off by saying, by great endurance. Some of your versions say, by great patience. And this word patience, it's not patience when you go to a DMV or go to a doctor's appointment. You just sit and wait. It's not this kind of patience Paul is talking about. This patience is more of an endurance. It's like you're running a marathon. And this word in the Greek is hapimon. This endurance will get you through tough times. This endurance will get you through hardships. This endurance will get you through difficulties. And this endurance is is something like the athletes have to train in sports to get your blood cells and your lungs to get accumulated when you train. It's this endurance that you have to train yourself to get used to. And there's a reason why Paul puts it here first as endurance. And you will see why Paul mentions endurance first. And he goes on to say, by endurance, by afflictions, Afflictions is suffering and pain. By hardships, hardships is when comfort is stripped away from you. By difficulties, difficulties is things that are just very, very, very hard to do and just hard to come by. By beatings, Paul was beat for the gospel multiple times if you read all his letters. By riots, by imprisonments, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger. And these are credentials that Paul is using to prove to them that he is worthy to be an ambassador of Christ. But sometimes, Paul here is not using this to bring attention to himself or to loathe. I like the word loathe is to bring attention to oneself, to tell everybody how much you are suffering. But he's using this to prove that, because of God, I've gone through these things. But he combats that with bringing good in why why it's worth it to do this. Let's go into uh, verse six, and he goes to talk about by purity, which is doing things in clarity, because sometimes when you're going through hardships, you try and go the short route instead of going through the long route. By knowledge. Knowledge is learning something, and Paul took his time to learn the scriptures. That's why he's able to cross reference and use Isaiah 49, verse 8. By patience, we see patience again, which is the same Greek word, which is endurance. By kindness, when you're going through hard times, as Paul was, and using this as an analogy, are you kind to other people, even though you're going through much? And kindness here is also a word for grace. Because in the Hebrew, has said" is a word for grace as well. By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a helper. He helps us to, to go through these difficult times. because when Christ left, he said that, "I'm going to send you a helper to come down to help you, make those decisions when we're going through hard times, not to compromise. And that's what the Holy Spirit helps and by the power of God, and sometimes we take the power of God in, in light, in lightness. And what makes me fathom this is when Christ died, he was buried for three days. Can you imagine someone just died? The consciousness is not working. They're gone. I've lost someone before. When you lose someone, they're gone. And I can imagine the disciples were distraught. But Christ was gone for three days. But then he rose again, and he ate food with his disciples. And that Christ's rising is the power of God against death. And Paul is using this as a way of counting his blessings, even though he's going through all these afflictions, to show that God is going to bring him through all of this. And he goes on to say in verse 7, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand, and the left hand, Paul right here is talking about a defense and an offense, because Paul had knowledge about the Greeks and the Greek culture. And this kind of talks about uh, somewhere in the book of Ephesians, where it talks about the armor of God. And the armor of God has a lot of defense and offense. And here it's talking about the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left hand. It's talking about a defense, because sometimes in afflictions and times, we need a defense from the enemy, and then also an offense to fight against him. And then from verses, verses 6 still 7, I'm going to read through. And I like to use this as a way of when we are being ambassadors of Christ, we're going to, it's sometimes the world views us a certain way, but then God views us a different way. So I'm going to read verses 8 till 11 here. Through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, regarded as as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognized, as dying yet see we live, as being disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. So Paul here is using two categories, the world and God's kingdom and how God views us. And I'm going to dissect this in two and just summarize what these verses are saying. So the world will say, look at you and say, dishonor you're a dishonor to this family, you're a dishonor to this community, you're a dishonor to this workplace because of what you're doing as a Christian or what I'm doing for God. And multiple times that happens. But what does God say that's glorious in his eyes, what you're doing? Because in someone's eyes that is a dishonor in God's grace, that's glory. You bring him glory to his name. The world says slander, that you have slander. Sometimes as Christians, even as Paul here, you do everything as best as you can. But you doing the best you can, as we looked at before, you offend so many people. And it hurts sometimes as a Christian or as a brother or sister in the Lord is when you hear slander from other people about what you did that was in truth and in love, but they don't talk to you in your face about what you did. And that slander can hurt sometimes. But then what does God say? God says good report. The world can look at you as a deceiver. They looked at Jesus as a deceiver even though he was bringing the truth to people. But God sees us as truth. The world can see you as a As humans, we want to be seen, heard, but God sees us as recognized. The world can see us as dying. There's this word, there's this synonym out there that says YOLO. If you've heard about it, it says you only live once. And as Christians, we can be tempted to live fully, be merry, because we're going to die soon and only live once. But as Christians, we know we don't live for this life. We live for the next. Because God says we live. Because when we die, we live again. In this world, we can grieve. And grieving, sometimes we look at grieving as losing someone that we love, which is true. But grieving can also be you grieve a job that you always wanted to have. You can grieve a relationship that you wish was. You can grieve a moment of time that was wasted. You can grieve so many things. Grieving can be what wasn't. But you can grieve well. But God says in that grieving, you're always rejoicing. Happiness can be taken away from you. Happiness is a, pre- a prerequisite of comfort. You can be comfortable, and comfort brings happiness. But if that comfort is stripped away from you, you can be happy. But joy cannot be stripped away from you, even though comfort is, because joy comes from the heart. So God says always rejoicing, even though you grieve. Jesus was known to be a grieve, always grieving for us. But he always rejoiced. The world can see you as poor not having anything, but God sees us enriching. A poor man can walk, a poor man who has nothing, can walk into a meeting where there's rich people, but he can enrich those rich people by what he says, how he acts, and his perspective in life. The world can say, you, you, you have nothing, or you're worthless. But in God, we possess everything. And that's what verses 8 to 11 talk about. It gives you the black and white of what the world sees and what God sees. And then verses 12 to 13 reads, We have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been opened wide. We are not withholding our affection from you but you are withholding yours from us. I speak to you, my children, as a proper response. Open your hearts. I look at this as a description of what the gospel is and what communion God wants with us. Paul here is saying that the Corinthians have just hardened their hearts to his counsel. They've hardened their hearts to the true gospel and the good news of what. God has sent Paul to to share with them. And Paul is teaching in love and in truth, but their hearts are closed. And in a way, this is what the gospel says. God is reaching down to us with love and in truth, but like the Corinthians, at times, we tend to turn our hearts away. One of the things I love about, and this will bring an analogy to what I'm talking about here, one of the things that I actually absolutely enjoy about kids' church downstairs, kids' church downstairs is the first 10 minutes. And those 10 minutes sometimes stretch to 15. It's because we sit around the table and I ask them, how was your week? How are you doing? They just don't tell me, fine, it was good. No, they tell me details. We go around the table. Sometimes the 15 minutes becomes 20 minutes. And I take pleasure in that. That's one of the reasons why I like doing kids' church. I take pleasure in that. It's because they're sharing with me things that they do. And they love sharing that with me, and I love hearing that from them. And that really means a lot to me. It does. And it gives me the strength to, to deliver the word of God to them. And in a way, using that analogy, Paul in is also trying to let the Corinthians know how are you guys doing and what you're doing is not really Christ-like. But because of that, the Corinthians are deterring their hearts away from Paul. And in a way, they're not letting Paul know how they're really doing and how they are actually feeling. And how is that with us with God where God asks us a question of, how are you doing, dear daughter and dear son? And all we tell him is we're doing fine. God takes pleasure in hearing about our mundane. He doesn't want to hear. Sometimes it's okay to tell him the big things in our lives, but if you think about it, our lives are full of the mundane. He wants to hear about the person who cut you off and drove you mad. He wants to hear about that. He wants to hear about you went to the grocery store and you couldn't find aisle five because aisle five has the good stuff. He wants to hear about the frustration you feel at work. You just can't get it. He wants to hear about that and that's what the gospel says to a parent. Or a child, the gospel says your child comes back home and you ask your child, how was your day? God wants communion. The parent wants communion with the child, but what does the child say? It was fine, and just runs upstairs. The gospel invites us to have communion with God and to just share. You may ask a question, well, God knows everything. Then why commune with him? He does, he does know everything but I'll perhaps if he knows everything why did he create us with this conscience where we're able to create technology he wants to reason with us he wants to know us and that's what these few verses here verses 12 11 till 12 is saying is we tend to harden our hearts towards god because he wants to invite us to have communion with him but we veer away, and we're not truly honest with him. So I challenge you today, uh, when you go back home and you pray with God, be genuine with him. Tell him what really angered you this week or what really drove you mad, because that's what he loves, and that's true communion, and that's what Paul wants with the church in Corinth. Moving on to verse 14. Don't become partners with those who do not believe. For the partnership is there between, what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Lawlessness. Some versions of yours said, do not be yoked with unbelievers. And Paul here is using uh, a reference from Deuteronomy 22, verse 9, uh, because the Corinthians could have got this. to be yoked, I think all of you are well versed in this. is two ox that are yoked together to plow, and if one of the ox is not ox, I mean is not uh, yoked with the other one, it makes it difficult because one wants to go the other way and this one wants to go this way, and it just makes it difficult to plow. And the best reference this goes to is with marriage, and one advice. I've always heard around is to always be equally yoked. And that can be being both believers in Christ. But it goes deeper than that. And I don't want to go into that right now. But that's the best analogy that Paul uses here. And he goes on to say, for what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Baal? And Baal is kind of a nickname for Satan. Or what does a believer have in common with an un- with unbeliever? And is Paul here saying that we are not to have fellowship with unbelievers, or if you own a business, not to be business partners with an unbeliever? He's not saying that. I mean, there's always difficulties having uh, relationship with unbelievers because your virtues of, of righteousness and truth cannot be practiced. But he's not saying to not speak to unbelievers because that defeats the purpose of the great commission, which is go out and make disciples. What Paul is saying here is, and he was trying to dig deep here, is not to be influenced by non-believers, because the, the Bible say, bad corruption, no good corru- no bad corruption corrupts good moral. So if you always see that you are being influenced by an outside entity, you have to question yourself and saying, how is this helping me in this way? And the best analogy I can use for this is it's a boat in water. If the boat is floating in the water, it doesn't let the water come into the boat so we cannot let the outside world influence our thinking." And that's what Paul is illustrating here, is not to let the outside world influence our thinking. Moving on to verse 16, and Paul goes on to talk about the temple. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out among from them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be a, f- a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says God Almighty." So God, uh, Paul is talking about idolatry and also the temple. Paul right here is using, is uh, referencing uh, Ezekiel 8. No, he's not referencing Ezekiel 8, but I'm cross-referencing Ezekiel 8 because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in Ezekiel 8, chapter 8, the temple of the Lord had idols buried within the walls because the priests were actually worshiping idols and they were hiding it beneath the walls. And is that just not sickening to hear? And Paul is bringing this because if the outside world influences you and your temple in you, there's gonna be idols that are hidden in your soul and in your heart. And the question is, if we are the living temple of, of God and Jesus is to come into your temple, is he going to find idols hidden in between the walls Or is he going to come and reside in your heart and make it his throne? Or if he comes to the temple, into your temple, is he going to flip tables out of anger and say this is a house to worship the Lord? Or is he going to come in and dwell in his temple? And to finish all of this up, I usually like to put this in bullet points. And if you're to leave here, This is what I would like you to live with. It's just little job points to wrap up Corinthians chapter 6, which is salvation today. And if you're taking notes, hopefully I can go through this really slow. Pretty much, Paul here is talking about Christ himself. Christ is written everywhere in this. Point number one. Christ walked together with God. We are to walk together with God as well. He appeals, Christ appeals for us not to take his free gift in vain, which is grace. Number two, receive his salvation today. After Christ died, anyone can come to him. Number three, Christ offended many through the gospel, but because he is God, he is pure and good. So don't be surprised if you offend a lot of people out there when you speak truth, which is the gospel. Number four, Christ has a resume of his own sufferings. He was dishonored, he was slandered, He was deceived. He was also seen as someone who deceived. Because when he said he was God, they thought he was a liar. He was unknown. He was dying. He grieved. He was poor, and he had nothing. But that did not deter him from rejoicing always. Number five. Christ brings us back to him through glory through good report, through truth, through being reconciled. He brings us back to him through living, through always rejoicing, enriching us, and also possessing everything. Number six, we withhold love from Christ because we feel offended by our sin. However, if we open our hearts, it fills us with love and truth. Finally, if Christ walked in your temple, which is your body, would he find idols buried deep in your soul? Or will he fill your temple with his glory? Let's pray. Heaven, Father, I just thank you for your word, which is truth. Thank you for your son who died so we can be reconciled back to you, Father. And thank you for equipping me to preach your word, Father. And I just pray whatever the ears here heard that was encouraging, I just pray that they'll take it in their hearts. And whatever was not of use from my mouth, I just pray that it will just go away like the wind. Because it's not about me, it's about you. And I pray as your children leave these doors today of this church that they'll go and be ambassadors of Christ to live in love and in truth. We thank you, we praise your name, in Jesus' name.